0: I was very happy with the turnout. What has been happening, elected officials cater to the select number of super voters that they have, but they always ignore those other people who never vote or who are infrequent voters, are low propensity voters. So now they didn't know who to target and that's why they want to put barriers in place because those low propensity people are showing up.
1: Welcome to The Women. I'm your host, Rose Reed, and this is the fourth of six episodes all about the battle for Georgia. In our Blitz mini-season focused on my home state, we're profiling the brazen and badass women who are impacting the runoff elections on January 5th. Although there may only be four names on the ballot for Senate, make no mistake, it's the women on the ground who will determine this election. And that has special meaning today as I have the pleasure of speaking with Helen Butler.
0: My name is Helen Butler. I'm executive director of the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, an advocacy organization founded by Dr. Joseph Lowry, and we are located in metropolitan Atlanta.
1: When you say grassroots organizing or voter rights in Georgia, Helen Butler is the name that comes up. Over the past couple of years, she's worked very closely with Stacey Abrams and Fair Fight, but she has been doing this work for decades.
0: It means a lot that Georgia is recognized. Uh, we've been working here forever. It's not like we just did this, this election cycle. It's not about that. We'll be here after this election is over, even though the attention may be gone.
1: During her tenure as executive director at the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda, Helen has registered tens of thousands of voters. They also do work ensuring voter rights and election protection. They work with the census. They're kind of a facilitator in democracy, making both policy and elected officials more accessible to local communities. As you can imagine, it's a very hectic time for this group, and I was able to grab Helen recently on the phone. I assume that you're pretty busy.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, just a wee bit, okay? <laughs> oh, is it been, I am like so tired of election right now. I don't want to see another election. You know, it's been something trying to do the work and not be able to be on the ground a lot. And yeah because I haven't been in my office
1: since March. <laughs> I know you through this Atlanta Grapevine, this like incredible network of women. We met through Nan Orak, the state senator right. and activist Heather Booth, both who have been on on the show The Women. And you know, you're a Georgia native you graduated as salutatorian of your high school class in Madison, Georgia in 1966. You're an accountant, mm-hmm. vice president mm-hmm. of human resources for decades, but you're famously known in our circle. Um, and, you know, now getting a ton of national attention as this grassroots organizer, what does all that mean to you?
0: It's not about me. And have always wanted to be in the background. I have done a lot of things in my lifetime, but to me, this means helping my community to improve. It helped me as an individual to understand that while I had opportunities, there are a lot of people out here that don't have those opportunities that I was fortunate to have. And so I need to ensure or help them experience some of the same things that I experienced in life, and uh, especially for the future generations. But the recognition should go to the people that I work with and all those thousands of other people that I've met across the state that I know that they call me, people that I know, ministers. Uh, the teachers that I worked with, the labor union people I've worked with, I mean, the elected officials that I met. It's all about people. And I've always liked people, always been a person that enjoys that. And so to me, it's about them. It's not about me.
1: We're in such an unusual place of having two Senate seats up for grabs at the same time. And the fact that those Senate seats are in a state that went blue for the first time in 30 years. And the fact that those two Senate seats will determine what party is in is in power in the Senate for the next four years. Well, what does that mean to for you? me? What does that mean to me?
0: Uh, we've been working here forever. It's not like we just did this this election cycle. It's not about that. We'll be here after this election is over, even though the attention may be gone. After January 5th, we got to start into redistricting, drawing the lines with the census and all of that, making sure uh, we get the resources based on the count, making sure that the counts are what they should be. If they're not, then we may have to try to get a recount. The national attention is great and great that a lot of people are coming here wanting to help we're so thankful for that but we have to understand that this is a moment but it's just a moment we still have work to do beyond that moment
1: what do you think that modern georgia looks like to you well
0: it to me you know when you talk about uh, in history you think about the statue of liberty and what it says gives me your tired you're poor welcome to america you know I see that. I work with the Latinx community. I work with the Asian American communities. I work with the African diaspora. I work with the Caribbean community. I work with all people. That's what Georgia will represent is that melting pot that we talked about in history. And that's why a lot of what I do is to protect that right to vote because to me, That is a critical first step in all of us helping to enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because public policy impacts us from the day we're born to the day we die
1: and everything in between. When you are thinking about Georgia 2020, are you targeting certain counties like on the map? And, you know, I just kind of imagine like you know, it looks like homeland or something inside your living room, like you've got strings up and newspaper clippings or, you know, how do you decide how to prioritize?
0: Our target audience is African-American communities.
1: So where
0: are those communities? What are the ones that need the most attention? We got a lot of resources in Metro Atlanta, but we don't have anything outside. Um, That's what we were trying to do is set up offices uh, so that we could reach those counties surrounding those offices um, that had the most need. You have Randolph County, you have Terrell County, you have Clay County, you have Decatur County. Those are all poor communities that have large populations of Black people that are really in need and hurting. For economic development,
1: what's that like for you? Going through such a huge election,
0: the issues—the more the priority issues—may change from decades ago to to now. But what I've seen is they're coming full circle. Before, uh, when I first got into this, we were again trying to get people engaged to understand the issue, why. It was important. We've registered thousands of people, tens of thousands of people over the decades. We um, mobilizing people are making. We're making hundreds of thousands of phone calls. We protected that right to vote by having monitors. We monitor uh, election board meetings to make sure we're and can be proactive. And we've also worked with our legislators to have good past certain laws, we hold our elected officials accountable. We do that 365 and we do it 365 and we do it 365. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm working more hours now than I've ever worked (laughs) because uh, so I can do Zoom beginning at 8 a.m. in the morning and I'm on Zoom to 10 o'clock at night. I'm on this panel about the new voting machines. I'm on this panel about how do we protect the right to vote? What do I need to know? That kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And you know, it's crazy that you can essentially carry NASA in your back pocket on your iPhone, but still going door to door seems to be the very best way to engage people in the election process and really get people out to vote. Is that because we haven't modernized our registration system? Or is that because people are apathetic about participating in voting?
0: I pay attention to everything election. A lot of people aren't paying attention to that every day. They're struggling with how do I work three jobs to take care of my family? How do I make sure my child's doing education is on track? How do I make sure I take care of my ailing parents? People aren't always in tune with elections, but when you go and talk to them, it gives them, you know, oh yeah, I hadn't really thought about this, but yeah, now you're right. I do need to pay attention. I do need to register. I need to find out who's on the ballot, you know, those kinds of things. And they appreciate you talking to them and helping them to understand that all of those issues that they're concerned about some elected official has an impact on that issue. So I think one thing COVID has done along with the young people in the protest for a large swath of the community now understand that it's critical you have the right DA, you have the right judges, you have the right chair, you have the right uh, police person, you have the right state representatives. How much money does your child's school get? Uh, How do you child do remote learning? And I think that's why you have people who have been energized to really show up at the polls this time, because they now have felt it deeper than we could talk to them about it. They have actually experienced it.
1: So how do you feel about the turnout this year?
0: I was very happy
1: with the turnout.
0: I was so happy that the people stood in line despite all the problems with having new machines, not having enough poll workers, people not knowing how to operate the new equipment, not being trained in spite of COVID and everything. COVID made them understand
1: how important voting is. And how do you feel about turnout for January 5th? Well, so far,
0: it looks like
1: it's going pretty good. Um,
0: I hope that it continues uh, for the next two weeks and that people are able to exercise that right. I want them to vote safely. I've been pushing vote by mail, use the Dropbox, make sure you get it there. And uh, we'll take them to the Dropbox if they want to ride to the Dropbox, <laughs> even if uh, I mean, we want them to exercise their right to vote when and we're not telling them who to vote for, but we just want them to participate because numbers matter. Uh, what has been happening, elected officials cater to the select number of super voters that they have, but they always ignore those other people who never vote or who are infrequent voters, or low propensity voters. So now they didn't know who to target. And that's why they want to put barriers in place, because those low propensity people are showing up.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah. And, you know, that's one of the big um, tactics of the last, you know, 10, 15 years in Georgia has been to purge the voter registrations of those infrequent voters. Right. So has your strategy changed for the Georgia runoffs on January 5th for these four Senate seats?
0: My strategy hasn't changed. My my tactic has. I saw that turnout in runoff elections is really, really low. If you look at the overall results of turnout for runoff elections, it's somewhere between ten percent and at the most twenty-five percent.
1: Oh, I didn't uh, realize but, it was that low.
0: Yeah. <laughs> It's, not, it's really not uh, usually a very high turnout percent unless you have a highly contested race.
1: I'm going to ask kind of a nihilistic question. You know, doing all this work year after year, person after person, don't you ever get tired of explaining to people that, like, brushing their teeth with this water or the roadworks or their education or their energy is related to policy? Well, it, it's it's not obvious to everyone. So to me, I'm on the outside looking at
0: the strategy, and I bring it to them because they're in the thick of things, fighting the everyday battles. So they don't always understand, hey, step back, see how it all starts, get at the root of the problem, fix that problem, and make it work. Because also as a part of that, a lot of the people were renting properties, and they had landlords that didn't even comply with the zoning code. And in this day and age, we don't teach civics, we don't teach how government interacts. So people don't really make that connection. I I take my cue from Dr. Joseph Lowry who founded our organization. And until his death, I mean, he was still actively engaged. Uh, He didn't attend our meetings every week like he used to, but I would tell him what's happening. Uh, He'd tell me some strategies to use. And yeah, he'd bless some of the strategies that I was uh, using. (laughs) Uh, So it's things like that. So if he could do it at 98, I ought to continue to 98 as well. If he, along with so many of of those other civil rights people, have sacrificed so much, way more than I did.
1: After being a part of an integration class at the University of Georgia in the 60s, do you feel like you've seen a lot of change?
0: I saw a lot of change, but what I'm seeing now is is things that are trying to revert back to the 60s. And I'm going like, we've been there, done that. We don't need to go back that way. We need to progress. Uh, we've always taken pride in that America does things different. Um, we believe in the principle of democracy. Uh, so I think we have to live up to that. And uh, not go back to the days when we think one person is better than the other. A person once told me that if you take off the outer skin of every person, the inside of us all looks the same. You can't tell us apart. And that is true. So why not, you know, look at life the same? Mm
1: -hmm. And that's the way I see it. So how would this flip in the Senate uh, pan out for you and your work? How would it impact what you do?
0: What it will do for me is, is if the people that get elected actually do what they say they're going to do, we're still going to be, as I said, working on things to improve the community, help the community understand that they need to have these elected officials accountable to them, not just when they need their vote. Some of these elected officials get elected and you never see them until the next two years, and next four years or six years when they're running again for re-election. Uh, we've got to train people. They've got to hold them accountable more than that. So it's helping people to get that culture of uh, being involved in the electoral process.
1: And have you noticed uh, the conversation shift or change at all? Like, do you see voters asking different questions now that Georgia's getting this national attention and now that we're in this really unique situation with the runoff and the control of the legislature?
0: We did a survey with the Black Women's Roundtable. The number one issue that voters talked about was racism. The second issue, of course, was health care uh, with the COVID situation and the criminal mm-hmm. justice reform. So those issues are still going to be there in our candidates' forums. A lot of the questions were, what are you going to do differently for my community around those issues? Do you believe in reparations for the Black community? What kind of uh, relief programs are you going to help us to recover from COVID? You know, it's very critical. People are, are... are being put out of their houses because they haven't been able to work because uh, you know they can't pay their rent. People are really concerned about those kinds of things and they want people that are really going to address that, will not be just up there talking ideology. One thing they do want to see is that the gridlock stops, that they cooperate and, and really do things to improve the community.
1: There's this quote that Stacey Abrams said, where black women have been instrumental, but I chafe at this idea that we then objectify one group as both savior and as responsible party. Is it a double-edged sword to to be both credited as like a, a voting block? Um, do you feel like that's a reduction?
0: Uh, well, I, I think we are a credible voting block and it is sort of a double-edged sword, but um to me, uh, black women tend to think about the community, about family versus individualism. So we've always been caregivers. We've always taken care of the community and look at ourselves as, you know, the last. And so I, I think that plays into our philosophy for voting we tend to look at what is best for our community. And so that's why we have the large participation of Black women. Uh, It's because they see it as from a community eye, not from an individual eye.
1: One thing that I see reoccurring in the news a lot is this framing of the Black community and specifically like the Black Voter Coalition as this backbone of the Democratic Party, appreciated during the election year, but forgotten as we move into the the next stage of the policy and the, the DNC and kind of business as usual. What's your perspective on that?
0: While we vote more Democratic, because the party's platform more mirrors the things that people are concerned with, things that would make the whole of the community better, not just certain segments. I mean, there are a lot of Black Republicans. And this thing about conservative versus non-conservative, well, a lot of Black people are very conservative. Uh, And so it's not about that. It's about what you say your policies will do to improve our communities. And that's how we look at it. That's how I look at it.
1: Are you personally excited about either or any of the candidates?
0: Hey, listen, I'm always happy that we got a Black woman that is the new VP. <laughs> uh, it's always good to see young people like Ossoff. I'm glad to see Reverend Warnock. I know he's a civil rights fighter long before he became a candidate, he was doing stuff in the community. So I admire him. I know that he knows the people in the community. He's worked with the people in the community. He's fought for the people in the community. I don't know the others personally, and some of the rhetoric that these other people are talking about, I do not like it personally. And I'm sorry, Um, you know, they haven't offered to me, anything concrete. Um, this takes it to produce record, uh, even with the COVID CARES Act. He voted against those. So, why would I give my support to him when we got people out here who are suffering every day?
1: Well, I think that the Republican side would argue they were kind of hardballing. Like, I know that's what they would say.
0: Yeah, but. Um, you didn't even espouse that you were hardballing. You didn't even come out and say that. And I know that you have to negotiate sometimes, but you have to give sometimes too. And when people are hurting, you have to give. Why are they giving now? They are now negotiating. Why didn't they do that at the beginning? And this is about people's lives. It's not about gain. And I know that if I call Reverend Warnock, and he's senator,
1: he's going to hear me.
0: I can go in and sit down and talk to him. Some of the others we tried to sit down and talk to them, they won't make time for you.
1: Are you saying you tried to meet with Senator Leffler or Senator Purdue?
0: Oh, listen, we do the Black Women's Roundtable every year. We go do policy. We take young girls up there and constituents from Georgia, and we tried to have meetings with them. We don't... They, they're never available, but they'll let you talk to their policy person and they talk to you and never get back with you. So what does that tell you? I think being an HR person, you had to do that. I worked with union people. I was on the other side at that time. And I also worked with just a diverse number of people. So I learned that there's always two sides to everything. And then there's The real deal is in the middle. So to get to that level, you have to listen to both sides and then come up with what's in the middle. So that's what I try to do.
1: And how does the controversy over handling election counting, election fraud, you know, the lawsuits, how does that impact your work, if at all?
0: Well, we have to ensure that people know the truth. We're always combating disinformation and misinformation. A, we want the Secretary of State to be an elected position because it gives the voters a voice in terms of who uh, represents them. Uh, Secondly, in terms of all of this stuff about the counting process, the counting process has always been the same. People have had the opportunity to observe, as we've always tried to educate them, and they haven't been there to observe. If you want to be a poll watcher, you can go and observe. I've been saying this ever since I learned election laws. <laughs> a lot of candidates don't even know they could have a poll watchers from the beginning of the process. You know, if you're going to run for office, know all the rules for running for office. They got upset because the Secretary of State passed out uh, 6 million absentee ballot applications. Well, that was the right thing to do. And quite honestly, that should have been a practice anyway, <laughs> because we've been asking for a vote by mail. If you look at the states that do vote by mail, you have a 80% and above turnout rate all the time. That's what we should have. We shouldn't have a 10% or 20%, a 30%, a 40% turnout rate. We should have a 100% turnout rate. But it's things like that that people don't understand and they're misconstruing because somebody up here is spouting off misinformation and think that's the gospel truth. It isn't hear what they say, but go find out for yourself. So you just have to make sure you do If you can, go to the source document. For me, like, if it's an election issue, I want to go to the code to see what the code says.
1: Uh, You go to to the code? The legal code? Yeah. Yeah. You can read it. (laughs) It's just reading. If you can read, you can read. (laughs) I guess I never thought of that because I'm a little too intimidated. Like, oh, I'm not a lawyer.
0: Uh, But lawyers are people that read, right? Lawyers are just
1: like people. (laughs) That's what I'm going to tell my friend who wants to go to Harvard Law School. I'll be like, well, you can read, can't you? I mean, it is.
0: Georgia. Georgia. The sound of you. I said Georgia. Georgia on my
1: mind. So I call this truth or truth. We go light after we go deep. It's our lightning round. Helen, I wanted to ask you, if you could be reincarnated in any time or any place or as anything, what would it be?
0: What would it be? Oh, God. I don't know about that. <laughs> Never thought about that. If I could be reincarnated yeah. as a person, what would I be?
1: You could be a person. You could like be in a different time or a different like exotic location or... Oh, okay.
0: Well, you know, i really like to be in the future to see what it's going to
1: be like. <laughs> in America or elsewhere?
0: Um, uh, I, I, I think it would be out of space.
1: Whoa, okay. <laughs> I feel like I just stepped into a Nikki Giovanni poem. <laughs> you didn't expect that, did you? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> You're throwing me curveballs here.
0: Well, I mean, so, I mean, you know, we're taking rides to the moon, right? Mm-hmm. There are other planets out there. So who knows? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I I would like to see what that would be like.
1: What's one song that's motivating you this year? One song. I haven't had any time to listen to music. <laughs> and that's my favorite thing. Um, hmm.
0: Ah, that's motivating me. I don't know, but I like glory.
1: Glory? By Common? Mm-hmm. Yep. Do you sing? Uh,
0: I, sometimes. I try. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I read in, uh, an article about you that your sister was adopted. And I was wondering if you had a perspective that you could share about blended families
0: Okay, here's the real thing. She's really my cousin, and my my mother adopted her as a daughter because my aunt died at a young age, and so she's really my cousin. But she's now my sister because my parents adopted her. Oh,
1: how how old were y'all?
0: Uh, she was
1: eight when her mom died, and so
0: that uh, she's been with us ever since then.
1: Is she also an activist? Do you guys talk about about politics? No, not really. She's not engaged. She was a
0: basketball star. She isn't now because she's gotten older, but um at at that time she was uh, on the basketball team in college at Albany State, uh, girl championships. She was really good. She was a fork and she was really, really good. She knew how to handle the ball. So mm.
1: So it sounds like you went to a lot of her games. Yes,
0: yes, because they were they were well known. Um starting in high school. So that that's that's really her her thing was that. I was more into books and music.
1: <laughs> is there is there a book you read when you were young that really inspired you or that touched you?
0: Not really. I like uh Gabron's work. I I, li- I liked his work,
1: so. You mean like The Prophet? Mm-hmm. Wow. Usually we go light, but you keep going deep, Helen.
0: <laughs>
1: well, you asked me the question. I know, I know, I know. Well, you know, for those people who are listening who may have never been to Georgia and their eyes are turned onto the state because of this election, you know, and they may kind of forget about us after after January 5th, is there one thing that you want people to know about Georgia?
0: What I want people to know about Georgia is that we may be a Southern state, but we're coming along into the 21st century and we will be a state that is soon the melting pot.
1: Oh, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Oh, great. (laughs) So I gave you some tidbits, huh, that you didn't know about me, huh? Mm, I didn't know. I didn't know you were a poet.
0: (laughs) I used to write before I came to corporate America and had to write. I can't stand it right now. I can't stand it. Uh, (laughs) When I went to corporate America, I had to write 300 job descriptions, and they had to all begin with verbs, so you know how that is. (laughs) (laughs) So after doing that I go like, oh God, don't ever give me another thing to write.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I really appreciate your work.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Bye, Helen. Have a good one. Okay, bye.
1: Wishing you all a very happy new year, and big thanks to Helen Butler for joining us as this Blitz mini-season continues. Six episodes in two weeks. Georgia on My Mind is reimagined by Las Cafeteras, Q Violin, and Sergio Mendoza. The song was a collaboration with the New Georgia Project, created to support Georgia and get out the vote. And special thanks to friend of the show, Michael Freeman, for reading today's credits. Hi, I'm Michael Freeman calling from Jeffersonville, New York. The Women is a production of the host, Rose Reed. This episode was mixed by Adrian Lilly. Thanks to our team, Gail Reed and Nora Kipnis. Special thanks to Wendy Zuckerman and to Jen Chippon and Haley Bosco. You can find the show on Instagram at The Women Pod. If you have questions about voting in Georgia, visit Georgia.gov. There will be more episodes leading up to the January 5th elections about the key women on the ground, so check back in in a couple days. And if you're digging the show, you should tell a friend. All right, that's it from Snowy Upstate. Happy New Year, y'all.